This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 42 of the Your Morning Basket podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and I'm so happy that you're joining me here today. Well, today we are talking all about the practice of Lectio Divina. Now, this is an ancient practice that scholastics used as early as the 5th century to dig deeper into all kinds of subject matter. And today we have Ashley Wobelin here on the podcast, and she's going to talk to us about how we can use this in our morning time and why we should use it in our morning time, even with some of our youngest kids. It's a fun conversation steeped in the classical tradition, and I hope you enjoy listening to it right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by MereMotherhood.com. It was back in the 1980s when Cindy Rollins, then a new mom in search of the best ways to teach her young son, first heard about homeschooling. 30 years and nine children later, Cindy has become a popular blogger, podcaster, and award-winning teacher, a journey that she has documented in her memoir, Mere Motherhood, Morning Times, Nursery Rhymes, and My Journey Toward Sanctification, published by the Searcy Institute. Mere Motherhood is the story of boyhood shenanigans, cross-country moves, and all the heartbreaks and joys that accompany motherhood. Head over to MereMotherhood.com to learn why Sarah McKenzie calls this a book that is written with grace and humility, packed with insight and perspective only a thoughtful, experienced homeschooling mama can give. The kind of book you'll borrow from a friend and never want to give back. And I'll tell you, you're not getting my copy. This was one of my absolute favorite reads of the past year. I was so inspired by Cindy's work. So use the code PAM when you check out to save 10% on your purchase. And don't forget to look up Cindy's Charlotte Mason themed podcast, The Mason Jar, wherever you get your podcast. You can find it all at meremotherhood.com. And now on with the podcast. Ashley Wolobin is a Catholic wife and mom who writes about classical education, liturgy, and virtue at her blog, Between the Linens. With a degree in liberal arts, as well as Circe Atrium training, Ashley loves to grapple with the meaty ideas behind classical Christian education and encourage parents to reclaim and continue their own education in pursuit of the good, true, and beautiful. She is the co-host of the Classical Homeschool Podcast. And she uses the podcast to bring some of these big ideas down to a practical level for the homeschooling family. Ashley joins us on this episode to introduce us to the idea of Lectio Divina and explore how this practice can be used during morning time. Ashley, welcome to the program. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Well, start off by telling me a little bit about your family and what morning time looks like at your house right now. Well, it's kind of chaotic right now. We just had a new baby, so we have five children ages eight to seven weeks. So we have quite an age range. My oldest is eight. And then I have a daughter who's seven. My oldest is a boy. And then Bella and then Bubba is four. And Tybee is three. And now we have the baby seven weeks. Okay. I'm not aware. What sex is the little baby? Odysseus is a boy. 
Oh, and Odysseus. I love that name. <laughs> How did yeah, I we miss have a Leonidas, this? a Tiberius, and an Odysseus. Oh, this is awesome. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, what does morning time usually look like in your home? Because we're totally going to give you the old morning time pass if you're not doing it right now. Oh, we totally are. That was actually one thing I didn't I had kind of fallen on when I was pregnant. But for some reason, we were able to pick it back up. And with the baby, he just kind of goes along with it for the most part. So we open with a psalm. And right now we're reading different ones to get through, hopefully get through all 150 of them to expose us. Because I had them memorizing Psalm 95. Well, they got bored. They already known it. So they say that one before they come downstairs now uh, for the morning. So we say our Psalm of the day. We say the Canticle of Zechariah, which is the Benedictus and starts the Divine Liturgy. And then we have our memory work with Classically Catholic Memory. And then I do an intensive. So it's we focus on one area of our memory work and enter that more deeply each day of the week, kind of like a loop schedule. Mm -hmm. And then we uh, read from our book house. That was the one thing my children requested that we always do in morning time was read from my book house. And we have a family read aloud. Right now we're doing Children of the New Forest and Where the Moon Meets the Mountain, which is a new favorite for us. And then we just do um, a simple patron prayer. Uh, Sometimes we listen to our music, our composer in that time just depends on how much time we have because our morning time takes about an hour and a half to two hours. So if everyone's getting kind of choppy, I just kind of say, okay, we'll move composer to the, you know, end of the day or because we have an evening time too. So. Okay. So you have five kids, eight and under, and you're able to get sometimes an hour and a half out of these guys in morning time. Oh yeah. Usually we usually go an hour and a half. If we don't, it's because someone's had a serious meltdown or I'm having a meltdown, (laughs) but nine times out of 10, we can get about an hour and a half done. Yeah. So do you think it's the fact that they've been doing this for most of their lives that you're able to do that? Yes. And that, and I really am big on my kids being independent. So Bubba and Tybee, I usually don't see them, the four and three-year-old. I don't usually see them until lunchtime. So they are allowed to go play, do what they want. Okay. So you don't require that the the four-year-old and the three-year-old actually sit in on the entire session. No, not really. They come and go. Bubba will have to, when she goes into kindergarten, which I've well, I know it'll be in January when she's like maybe five. We'll try it and see because she knows how to read. She taught herself how to read. So I was surprised one day when she was just reading from the prayer book. And so she's been asking to do school. So maybe I'll make her sit down when she turns five and we'll see how she does. I've never had a problem with five. I think I feel like five is a good age for my kids to sit down and pay attention. Okay. That sounds awesome. Oh, and there was something else she said that I wanted to come back to. <laughs> as well. You've just floored me here. <laughs> you floored me with the whole, yeah, we're doing it an hour and a half. They're all eight and under. And the five-year-old just taught herself how to read. And <laughs> it was a complete shock. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean you know how to read? <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just completely floored over here. I'm like, man, I'm never going to live up to all of this. And my youngest is almost eight. Well, th- I think the main thing I don't want, Ashley, is for people to listen to that and go, oh my gosh, we're just going to quit right now because it's never going to be oh, anything don't. like that. This is something that I didn't know what morning time was until like, I don't know, we quit four years ago. It became like a name thing. Mm-hmm. I had never heard of Cindy Rollins or any of this. I was just really kind of throwing things together. And my husband was deployed from, has been either gone or deployed for most of our marriage. So really, that's what I did with the kids because I was bored. I would sit down with them in the playroom, even when they were babies and couldn't do anything but sit there and look at me and drool and read them the Odyssey. 
I was so alone and so tired and so like my oldest didn't sleep for like 20 minutes at a time for like three and a half years. So I would just sit there and read the classics from college that I missed. I missed my career and I missed being part of the academic world. So I would just pick up my books and I would just read them. And so I think it's become part of our family culture. And because I am uh, somebody who is not maybe not as motherly or nurturing as most women are, it's a way for me to love my kids. It's I love to sit down and read with them more than anything. I get no joy from wiping their butts, no joy (laughs) from the newborn smell. But I love to sit there and read together in a messy stack of books. And it's something that I didn't have growing up either. That's funny because we've already commented once in this conversation before we started recording about our awkward INTJ small talk that we were doing. (laughs) (laughs) And you're absolutely right, though. It is one of the ways doing something like reading extensively to your kids or, you know, sharing that great literature that you love is one of the ways, you know, that you appreciate being with them. So yeah, and yeah. we can touch base on it. I feel like I'm sharing myself, but not too vulnerable, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, that's funny. But it does really sound like that you've been doing this for so long. It is absolutely part of what they've grown up with. And they really don't know any different than that. Yeah, I wouldn't say they did. I think they think everyone does it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, well, we actually have you on here to talk about Lectio Divina. So let's talk a little bit about what exactly is Lectio Divina when we say, you know, when we talk about that phrase. Oh, yeah, Lectio Divina. So I'm going to say Lectio just because that's the classical way to say it. But there's two different ways. You can say it either way. Both are right. Lectio Divina or Lectio. There's ecclesiastical and classical. And so I'm going to just say that. So you're not wrong. Okay. Oh, uh, because someone yelled at me. And I was like, I'm just saying it the way I was told. I'm sorry. Uh, so it's a so it basically it was a process that was named by Pope Gregory the first in the 500s. And I guess it had been around a while and he put the name to the steps that I'm going to tell you about. So St. Benedict is the one who developed it for the mind, the body and the soul of a person. So he really took the idea and applied it to the Benedictine monasteries. He's kind of credited with it in practical use. So Pope Gregory named these three steps and the three steps were Lexio, Meditatio, and Compositi. Now there is a, I'll talk about this in a minute. There's another one that people use would be Contemplatio, but that wasn't popular until the 1200s, that translation of it. Okay. And they are different and they did set Lexio Divini in a different way. So basically this process is really a liturgy it's a way to glorify God by realizing the innate structure of the world of recognizing truth. And this was a big thing in the Middle Ages with forming the moral imagination. It comes from Neoplatonism, where they believed that the world was imbued with truth. Everywhere they looked, there was hidden signs of truth and that man's whole job was to learn how to recognize them. So the more they could gather, the more they could learn the signs, the more they could become whole people. Okay. Does that make sense? It does make <laughs> sense, but I want you to translate and break down the steps for me. Okay. So, Lexio is the first step. It means to read or to gather. Mary Carruthers, she does the famous bee example, right? That's where we get the idea of the making honey. And so, this would be the metaphor of gathering the pollen and the nectar. This would be the bees, you know, like your mind palace reaching out for new information. So, this would be reading your books doing a math problem, 
watching a TV show nowadays or a documentary, hearing a conversation, hearing the radio show, any kind of area where you're going to pick up information gathering. And so this is Ravi Jain and the liberal arts tradition. They give a good example of it kind of being like the idea of grammar. So the study of grammar, where you're really learning everything you need to know to translate a script, a manuscript, is kind of like Lexio. It's kind of like the first step. You're just getting all of the pieces together. Okay. And we should point out that grammar in that context is not nouns, verbs, and pronouns. It's right. any kind of gathering of information. It's the classical definition of grammar. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. And then you go into meditatio. And this is more like the dialectic. I like to call it the bee vomit stage. <laughs> Lovely. Because <laughs> you're just vomiting back this information. This is where your narrative nar- narrations would be. This is where you're going to wrestle with the information. You're going to compare and contrast. You're going to defend or you know acquiesce to another opinion. This is where you're really regurgitating and kind of going through, does it make sense? Does it not? This is more of a community step. You would do it hopefully with people in community because this should never be separate from community. Okay. And then the third step originally was called compositi. And this is probably more apt for education and what more apt for what actual Lexio Divina was made for by Pope Gregory and St. Benedict. They wanted, so this is the original word, and it relates to turning thought into action, taking a moral stand. This is more like rhetoric. When we're doing rhetoric, we're not just trying to persuade other people of pretty opinions. We're not sophists. We are trying to morally put out good things and persuade people to do good things. So this is more of where that reconciliation of man comes in. We're trying to align our souls, our mind, our body to God's immutable law. And this is what compositi means. It means to create, to take action. And so this is the honey. And hopefully the honey is good honey. It's not turned or bad or has contaminants in it, right? So by the process of meditatio, you can go through and make good honey. In the 12th century, though, it was changed by a Carthusian monk who called it contemplatio. And unfortunately, what that did was it created a divide between secular and sacred. And so in the beginning, St. Benedict, nothing was separate from the sacred word. The Bible and science were the same thing. You could read Shakespeare in the Bible and it'd be the same thing. These were all supposed to be forming things of moral opinion and virtue. There wasn't a separate, you know, Andrew Kern talks about this. He's got a Christ-centered curriculum talk. And he really hones in on that, that it's not, there's not secular versus sacred. Everything can be used, has to be thought of as coming from God if it is the truth. Right. So what they're saying about this is everything points back towards God and everything comes from God, even if it's not, you know, quote unquote, holy or spiritual in nature, it still comes from God because he is the creator of the universe. Right. The logos is the incarnate word of God. And if we believe that, then that means all truth is God. So what compositi means is that you are literally recreating yourself in a moral stance. You are recreating the man you were supposed to be. Contemplatio is means you're contemplating. You're thinking about becoming. You're not quite becoming. And so it was a really a misunderstanding that goes back to the Carthusian order and how they perceive knowledge. Because all these monasteries have a different way of understanding knowledge. And probably in classical education, the most compatible would be St. Benedict. You know, we want to combine work and school and leisure. And he really had a more practical world. A homeschooling mom could do that. You can't really, as a Carthusian, lock yourself in your bedroom and only study. I mean, that's not going to work for a homeschool mom. So, and then, you know, so you have to understand that too, when that changed, 
the world was changing and there was a lot of tension between sacred and secular in the mindset of the Carthusians. So at that point, we're heading like into like pre-enlightenment, renaissance kind of period and things like that. Yeah. And unfortunately, the Carthusians, you know, they felt a lot of tension in history just because they were hermitage. So they saw things as threats a lot more than people who were already out there kind of dealing with them already. Right. Right. There is a fourth step sometimes. Okay. um, Added by St. Clair of Assisi. She added oratio, which means to pray. And this kind of comes from, again, the differences in the monasteries. So a Franciscan mindset was not a one about education. They were more about going out there and just being with people. Um, So they, education was very low. You know, there's a a great thing about St. Francis who asked, what is the need for books? You know, he didn't see the need for it. He thought that it would lead people to bad opinions. They wouldn't have enough dialectic. They would start forming their own opinions and go their own way. He thought the way of education was really amongst other people. So she added a ratio so that way people could pray about what they were reading and, you know, use it as a way to order the knowledge a little bit better. Okay. So use the prayer as a way to order the knowledge. Yeah. And she would put that between meditatio and contemplatio. And about when did she add that extra step? What time period? Around the 1200s. So again, again, that pre-enlightenment, she was in Italy. So she was feeling that tension of the humanism coming up and that separation from authority, for sure. Okay. Very, very interesting. So what is the purpose of going through this process with any kind of information? And we're going to talk in a minute about how to practically apply some of these steps to pieces of information that we come across as a homeschool mom and with our kids in a situation like morning time. But what is the purpose of going through these steps? I know it seems, I don't know, it seems like such a big process. <laughs> it really does. And so basically, Lexio Divina was just restoring the broken nature of the mind, body, and soul from the fall in the garden into alignment with God's law. So you really wanted to reconcile the broken world to man uh, into God. So you wanted to become whole human beings. They believe that, especially in the Middle Ages, you had this idea that things were, there was truth hidden everywhere. They were realists. They believed that, you know, there were signs and symbols of God's truth, but man was clouded because of concupiscence, which is the want to sin and original sin. And so they couldn't see things clearly. Their imagination was not thought of how we think of it. So imagination would have been a way to elevate the mind up to heaven. And so it wasn't as useful as maybe we would term it today. They wouldn't call it creative. It was more of a a way to go outside the box, but it had to be ordered. And so if the mind and body and soul were working together, the imagination could lift them up to God and the imagination worked off of things, signs and symbols that they could recognize. So if you were doing Lectio Divina, you were training your imagination with good symbols and learning to see the truth and not maybe the untruths present in the world. And that was supposed to bring you closer to God. Yes, because you would then create yourself anew with Compositi, you were taking new steps to becoming a whole person. Okay. All right. So did traditionally, did the Lectio Divina apply to reading and meditating on scripture only? No, that was not the original. Like I said, Benedict, the monks never separated things like that. It wasn't until later that they started to. They were searching for any and all knowledge. I mean, they were the great translators of scripts. They were the ones who took Arabic books and made them applicable for people in Latin uh, and Greek. They were storehouses of knowledge, any parchments that they could get their hands on. 
Now, that is not to say that they weren't maybe censored at some levels. Like if your superior felt that you could not handle this truth or you could not see it properly, they had the right to not let you read that book. But that would have been under their term of obedience. So no, they, in fact, I think it's more of a more recent thing that we would separate sacred and secular script. They did not see any distinction between science, math, anything. It was all the same. It was all truth. Okay, that is really interesting. So this didn't start out as a kind of scripture study, which, you know, we're both Catholic. And as a Catholic, a lot of times we, I think, so one of the perceptions we get of this these days through the church, or not necessarily the church, but through, you know, evangelization efforts is that Lectio Divina is some kind of scripture study. But that, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I mean. It was kind of sad that Contemplatio took a hold because that's exactly what it did. It relegated it to only scripture. Oh, this is very interesting. Okay. So you're saying that this is a practice that could actually be done with any reading during the It should be done. Yeah. Any reading should be done with this. And that's really what the classical education is about. It's about getting rid of divisions of knowledge. Okay. Expand on that one for me. What do you mean when you say that? Well, I mean, you know, subjects don't actually exist. You know, I think Andrew Kern, I think we've all heard Andrew Kern uh, get really mad about, about this when people do subjects. Grammar is, these are arts and these are skills. The liberal arts teach us skills, which we can apply to science. So science is a skill in practice. So if we want to move on from the liberal arts, we have to do the skills. So math isn't a skill. It is. It's a skill, but it's not like a segmented skill. You still need it for everything. Everything kind of comes together. It's all truth. So it all has one going back to point, and that's God. So the more you divide things, the less truth you can see, right? You can't see the whole picture. So the skill of, you know, the quadrivium, these skills, and then the fourfold path lead us to a different side of God, a different facet of God. And then you have the liberal arts. And so you're seeing another side of God. And what the idea is, you're going to come together. And then that's what natural history is, right? It's a coming together to see all these different things. You need both the liberal art, the trivium and the quadrivium to come together in the natural sciences in order to truly see what to order what you're seeing and to make sense of it. Does that make sense? It does make sense. (laughs) You know, one of my big things is I try to take something I hear and and translate it and say it more plainly. And I'm struggling with you, Ashley. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm struggling no. to explain because I said math isn't a skill. I'm like, but it is. Yeah, it is. It is. But it's all, it's not just a skill. It's more than a skill. And so I think a lot of what happens in modern education is we reduce it to the skill only and yeah, we leave you. out the other parts of it. You know, mathematics is also a truth. We were reading, and I'm going to get this wrong. But uh, we were reading in science the other day, and I think it was Aristotle, or it might have been Plato, who, you know, basically said their mathematics is truth. It's there. It's a natural thing. And man just discovers it. Man didn't actually invent these mathematical truths. Man is just there to remember or discover these mathematical truths. And so, sure, there are skills involved that you have to learn in order to be able to realize these things. But it's so much bigger than that. And oftentimes, modern education just reduces it to the skill only. In the practical, you know, what is, when I think of math, especially in in our homeschool, it's touching the face of God. So when we're going through the mathematical timetables, that's like learning the beginning stages of God's language. So 
you know, like when we go through maybe declensions in Latin, it's the same thing as going through your times tables. You're learning a little bit of the language at a time. So all of this stuff is mimicked amongst the truth. And so you have things like grammar where you have this giant, you know, if, if you really think about what the skill of grammar is, if it, I do like the liberal arts tradition, uh, Ravi Jane and uh, Scott Clark's definition of that everything you need to translate a manuscript as grammar, because it just, it is a basic study in everything. And then the dialectic takes that basic study and makes you wrestle with it. And then the rhetoric makes you act on it. And then you have in the, the quadrivium, you have different ways that you're learning God's language. So like I said, arithmetic, you're learning basics of how to talk with God, of how he created creation. You are learning the song of creation. And then you have geometry, you're learning how he spaced the song of creation out. It's kind of like watching Aslan. I mean, you literally, you could put yourself in the shoes and watch Aslan create as you're doing math problems. I mean, that's what you're doing. Okay. (laughs) I have never thought about math that way, but... I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go with it. Okay. So back to using this with other readings during morning time. Can you give me some examples of you have an eight-year-old as your oldest. You're saying we should be doing this with everything in our morning time. So what would it look like with you and that eight-year-old and that six-year-old practicing Lectio Divina in your morning time? So we always, it's about intention. I think that's a large part of it. It has to do with me starting in the right headspace. And that is really hard because I have to be in the mind space to recognize that what I'm doing is conversing with God and one of you know his children. And so I usually start by picking something that I know will have something that I'm comfortable talking with and something that I think they really need. So like with Children of the New Forest, it's about children learning how to be self-dependent and self-reliant and learning how to gauge correct risk assessment. And so I see the parallels of that in the Bible. So we might read that and we're going to read it and we'll, you know, I'll ask them their favorite quote or maybe something that struck them, ask them for their narration back. And then I'll I'll ask them, hey, can you continue to think about this? And then I'll ask them, you know, maybe later in the day, hey, what could you take away or what actions can you do to be like Edward or uh, I forget the little girl's name, (laughs) you know, so I think it's starts with being in the mindset that you're trying to teach truth and how to recognize truth first. And then you have to kind of work backwards and ask yourself, what truth do I want my children to see? Because they could find any truth and you could totally do that. I've done that. I totally winged it and said, what truth did you find? (laughs) And that came back to bite me, right? Because I was not prepared for the truth they found. So I was like, they're not going to think about that. Okay. Um, So hold on and let's break this down into the steps. So the first step where you're actually reading the passage to them that is the uh, Lexio. Lexio step. Okay. And then the part where you ask them to narrate back, and you said something else in there. Wrestle- to ask them to, yeah, to wrestle with it. I ask them to think about it during the day. Okay. That is the second step. Yeah, that's the bee vomit stage. Okay. And then the third step was where you come back and you ask them again, what did you realize from this? And do you call it, con- or no, you, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to correct myself. It's where you ask them, how could you be like them? Yeah, the compositi. Okay. And you actually do it as compositi in your home instead of contemplatio. Okay. Yeah, because I want them to take action. Um, Classical education is about, you know, our actions meeting our thoughts in virtue. So we have to take steps to actually do that. So maybe when they're in trouble, like, you know, 
every child has their vices that they struggle with. And so my son has his favorite fable, which is the donkey jumping off the cliff. Uh huh. Yep. And so we constantly have to remind him, do you want to be the donkey? (laughs) That is something that we have to constantly ask. And he's like, no, you know, and then that Lexio really, you can see a change in him. He takes that on. He doesn't want to make that choice. I think it's really hard as parents, especially in today's world, to make children face the consequences of their actions, Mm -hmm. true natural consequences, and watching them fail and be disappointed. I think society kind of, especially I felt that way as growing up, I watched kids who just never had consequences. And then they grew up and it's like, holy cow, they're struggling. And I didn't want that for my kids. And so I decided to kind of create a situation where they would always have to pick themselves back up. And so I figured stories were the best way to do that. And then I had a priest tell me about Lexio Divinia. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's so much better than what I'm doing because <laughs> I could tie it to Jesus. <laughs> like, it never occurred to me. I don't know. I was young. Okay. So those are the particular three steps. And that is how you move through them. Do you ever add that fourth step in there? No, because we say so many prayers throughout our day. I schedule my day like a monastery. So they always hear the divine office. So I feel like even when they're thinking about, they're probably praying about it even without knowing it. Okay. So let's talk about this for just a second. In the monastery, would the steps of Lectio Divina be done together in community or was it more a time of uh, solitary study and reflection? So that would depend on the order. Um, There are always going to be some aspects done in community for sure, but it is a process that happens both internally and externally. So each monastic order would have a different approach, like I said, based on their mission. So for instance, the Benedictines and Dominicans would have an individual study time as well as large group destruction, uh, dis- destructions, Ashley, discussions. <laughs> it does sound like morning time. <laughs> right? Yeah, they would destruct everything. They really do. They destruct ideas. I guess it fits, right? They would have these giant group discussions. And the Dominicans were big on you know, fighting heresy. So they were big debaters. So they were obviously into the art of rhetoric. So they would have had very, very outward community discussions. But then you had the Carthusians. They were completely solitary. They only had like an hour or two a week with their community. And they got one book to read for the entire year. And they would talk about it in that two hours that they had on Sunday out of their cells. So I feel like homeschooling obviously were more like the Benedictines and and Dominicans. Depending on your family. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I would prefer the Carthusian method, but no one's taken me up on that. Um, We apparently all have to be together all the time. um, Well, so what is your order? I mean, you know, which one do you kind of strive for? I would say we're a nice mixture between the Benedictines and Dominicans, probably more on the Dominican side, just because I love to read for Jesus. So that's my love language is books. But I will say the work aspect of the Benedictines is has helped me through transitioning to be a stay-at-home mom and a homeschool mom. So how does that, does that translate at all to Lectio Divina, that work aspect? Yeah, I think what work allows you to do, physical labor, allows you to participate in the community and to take care of the community. David Hicks has a beautiful sentiment in the introduction about knowing your place. And medieval man was happy to toil in the farm lands next to the angels. And that's what I want to do. I want to plow my land next to the angels. I want to, I want to be there. I want to be ordered. And so I feel like uh, manual work is humbling. Uh, you know, you hear about Jose Maria Escriva and Opus Dei, and they have a beautiful concept of work that I think fits in to Lexio Divina because they're taking everything they're gathering and they're meditating it while they're working and they're striving to be 100% present in what they're doing. And really what we're talking about is Scolay. 
this process of Lexio Divina is really a metaphor for Scully. It's setting you up for experiencing Scully on a deeper level. Okay. And when you referred to the introduction, you're referring to the introduction of norms and nobility, right? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just wanted to make that clear for everybody. I knew what it was because that's the only part of that book I've managed to make. It <laughs> it's my favorite part of that book. It's a slow read for me it over is. here. <laughs> no, it's a slow read. I still go back and I'm like, ah, oh, Dave, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Okay, so what are some of the challenges of actually, well, okay, I want to back up a little bit. Why do you think this is so important to strive to do this with our kids? I think it's important. Uh, so many things. Alexia Davinia is a is one of the most important things I think you can do because it's a modeling. So not only are you showing your children how to encounter new ideas, to be open-minded without accepting all new dogma. But you yourself are. Uh, you can't help but be transformed when you're constantly putting yourself in a place of understanding, of humility. So I really believe Lexia Divina is the key. If you really want to experience Scole, because it is a state of being, it's a choice. Uh, and if you want to know what real wonder is, it's not a fun activity. It's a, it's a choice. You can choose to be in wonder. And you can only do that if you can recognize the truth in front of you. If you can see that the, the nine times tables are opening yourself up to God. He created this entire world just so you could be at this moment learning how to speak the language of creation. That's the most important thing you can be doing. There's no way you can't have a spiritual revelation when you are participating in Lexio Divina with an open and honest intention of getting towards God. So are you just constantly trying to convince yourself that or your kids that this is what's going on? Because my kids are going to look at me and go, Mom, you're crazy. It's funny. I have my, my oldest is completely Saint material. (laughs) Like he is, he is like, I don't know, super mystic boy. And then I have my daughter who doesn't know what planet she's on. And so we always have these conversations, but I've always approached anything like this. So I'll tell my kids, you know, when we're having a really hard day and no one can remember anything. And everyone's pretty sure that, you know, Charles Martel was in 2010, that we can either choose to pray our memory work or or we can go to bed because if we can't choose to be in wonder of what God's created for us, there's no way we can possibly accept what we're going to learn today anyways. Because I don't, I don't want their lives to be about the practical nature of, of math because it, that's going to burn them out at some point. And they do that. They, yes. come, they come along for the ride. Well, they, or they go to bed. I mean, they can spend all day in bed. That's their choice. I mean, honestly, I have no problem with them being in bed. Because <laughs> it's quiet. They have a special meal when they go to bed, everything. So... <laughs> I have my five-year-old, Bubba knows. Bubba and Tybee both, they know. If they can't participate in our family, they can go to bed. Okay, so this is part of what we're doing. Right, and everyone's going to approach that differently in our house. Really what ends up happening is when they go to bed, they realize they do want to be part of something, and that means they have to choose. Okay. They can choose to be a part of the family and choose to be a good person and have a good attitude because no one really wants to do most of the work. And I'm honest with them. I'm like, listen, I don't want to change diapers. I don't want to get up at 6 a.m. and get everyone's breakfast ready or have, you know, set it up for you guys to do, but I have to do it. And that's just something we live by as we ought to do things. And with that comes great love and sacrifice. And that's where we find the will to continue. Okay. I love it. So this is going back to, this is part of the family culture and they're participating in really what you've set up for them and your expectations that you've set up for them 
over time. And so if this is a practice that a mom is going to try to do, and this is something new that she's bringing on her family, she's really going to have to baby step her way into this level of expectation, right? Oh, yeah. Because, you know, it didn't start this way. It took me, you know, probably... You know, it's probably really until Leo was six, my oldest was six, that I got the flow of what I really wanted. And you're going to have to fail. I think the beauty of Lexio Divina is how much you fail because you don't have an option. You have to take risk and you have to grow. You don't get to stay complacent. You have to struggle. You have to cry. You have to be honest with your children. It's the hardest thing to tell my children today, I'm not capable of having a good attitude. So I have to go to bed. That's embarrassing and it's not fun. And so I don't have that attitude anymore. And so maybe the first step I would say would be to learn how to choose to be in wonder yourself first. And the more you show that to them, the more they're going to show notice that difference and want to be there with you. Oh, that's awesome. And so you're definitely leading by example. Yeah, I think Lexi Divina has to be led by example. You can't force people to be in wonder, but you can want you can motivate them to get on the train, you know, get on the Lexi Divina train. It's like a dinosaur train, but without song. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So what I'm hearing you say, because I had a bunch of questions written down about like contemplation and meditation, and we're not talking about something that is this silent, you know, thing that's going on. You're reading the material, you're having this discussion about it and helping them wrestle through it. You're asking them to think more about it. And then you're, you're talking about how they might act upon it. So there's really not a kind of, meditation kind of part to this where you're expecting people to be quiet. You're asking them to wrestle with this through the day as they're going about the rest of their day, right? Oh, yes, ma'am. It is not quiet. It is it is messy and it's loud and it's painful and you can't help but complain and extrovertly think about everything. And I think there's a place for quiet time. And I think the children do that so naturally. I think when they're playing trucks, you know, their minds are working quietly. It's not like an adult where we've learned to shut down and we have to things quiet and we're going to focus, hyper-focus on this one topic because we have to. I found with the more you do Lexio Divina, the more it happens spontaneously and the more you can just really learn to take your emotions out of it and wrestle with it and be willing to have things ripped to shreds makes it all the easier to actually contemplate because you are free of what you want. It's no longer about you. It's about the goal, which is to know truth. And so I see this as, you know, one of our desires as a parent is that they're going to kind of subconsciously do this when they come in contact with new ideas and new reading and new things like that in the future that they're not going to need mom to walk them through the steps of this. They're going to take every piece of information that they come across and kind of subconsciously move through this process because you've taught them how to do it over the years. Yes. Yeah, that is the goal. And if you set it up, they'll be able to, you know, not be defensive when they come to a new idea or be hurt that someone would think that they're crazy for believing it. They will just say, okay, well, tell me your part and I'll tell you mine. And they should be able to, I mean, that's hard, but I think if enough practice in, in the safety of your home, children learn how to do that. And that's really what the world needs right now is to learn how not to be offended. So, you know, we have to learn how to say, I am over here, this has happening over there, and I can meet that person and I can sit with them and know that there's something going on, but I don't have to believe everything they say, but that's okay. And you don't have to be mad at them because... No, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, if it's you could, great for siblings. If you could bottle that and sell it. Okay, okay, hold on. You just said something. Let's go back to this. It's great for siblings. So how does Lectio Divina help sibling relationships in your home? 
you know, Leo and Bella are so close. They're only like, I think like 10 or 12 months apart. So, or more than that, you know, they're 15 months apart. So they're 15 months apart. And so they just nag at each other. But what we've been able to do is they understand they're both different and they're processing things differently because we've had to talk about, you know, Bella, what is your way of seeing this? But Leo, what's your way of seeing this? And we've talked about personality types in our home. And so they can kind of appreciate the strengths. And with Lexi Divina, they're able to begin to gather information about each other, not only the social cues, but emotional cues and to know when maybe to pull back on an idea and maybe when to push forward a sibling being an authority figure. And so they can keep each other on track, especially morally. Okay. That's interesting. You know, Honestly, I have two boys and they fight constantly. And for some reason, it's never occurred to me to take an approach where they actually sit down and consider what the other person, you know, because as an INTJ, I just want everybody to be quiet. I know. <laughs> just, just, I know. Just, your father and I don't treat each other this way. Why would you do this? You know? I know. Yeah. And so that's actually very interesting that, you know, to take this first stage where you're actually gathering information about this other person, you're actually, you know, thinking about how might they be feeling about it? You know, how are they acting? What might this mean? And then being able to wrestle with that and decide what you should do based on that. I like that. I like that a lot. So, well, how can some of the practices that I might already be doing in morning time, like reading living books or doing narration, fit into this particular idea if I'm wanting even more practical ways to bring it into what we're doing? I think that one of the most practical ways that you can do it is by reading living books and also balancing it with maybe fact books. I know this is a controversial opinion. I'm probably get all kinds of hate mail for this. <laughs> I have found in my own children that a balance between the mythos and the logos creates more wonder than one by itself. They have to have, I think history is a good example of this. History is both scientific, like it's scientific myth as Jennifer Dow has recently said, and I, I love that she said that because there is a spirit of a nation, but there's also events that happen. I do memory work in my morning time for Lexio Divina because that's training p- children to see God, whether it's in myth or logos. They're, you're actually teaching them to see fact in front of them and to accept it. You're working on the virtue of faith. And without faith, Lexio Divina can't go anywhere. So faith is the knowledge and hope of what is to come. So if you, I think, can give them a little taste of that truth in front of them, that is boldly put in front of them, you'll see results just as much as you will with a living book. But like learning the nine times tables is just as amazing and just as relationship building as reading a story, because that's still truth. You can choose to be in wonder or not. So learning a timeline or, yeah, and I know you mentioned that you use classically Catholic memory, memorizing a a history sentence you feel has a role to play like living books would? Oh, definitely. I think it's a great introduction. It starts the child thinking about the fact, the logos. He's seen the logos. Now he's going to get a more in-depth understanding of the spirit of the logos. We need both the legal aspect of the law and the spirit of the law in order for it to be a true picture. A relationship that's one-sided fizzles out. It doesn't amount to much. Okay. And, you know, we hear this argument and the Scully sisters did a podcast about this recently where they talk about, you know, memory work out of context. And so, you know, we're coming back to this idea of putting facts 
in front of our children, but we're not talking about doing it at the expense of ideas or at the expense of context. We're talking about doing this along with ideas and along with context, but that the factual side is just as important as the other side. And I think too, if you want to just memorize something, the context is God. If it's true, the context is it's God. I do believe that. I have as much relationship with factual documents as I do with historical. And I think it's because of how I approach it and how I know that I can choose to be in wonder over the times tables. I can choose to see this as the context of creation, which I'm part of, that automatically creates a life of context. We shouldn't desegment knowledge from the context of what it is. And that is truth of God. It's the incarnate word of God. Fascinating. And you know what? That just opened a can of worms that's like a whole nother episode (laughs) right there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, you know what? I think we're just going to have to wrestle with that one for a while (laughs) and see what action we might want to take on it later. Yeah, because that's bigger than than the the last little part of this episode. But that's that I've never heard that. And it's absolutely fascinating to think about. That if you consider that the context is God, then everything is taken in context, even the factual things that they might memorize, you know, in isolation. Hmm. I'm going to have to think about that one. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, Ashley, you always challenge me. Okay, before we go, I just want to give you one opportunity because this is a place where I felt a little inadequate in even asking the questions. So. Is there something that we've missed that you think is important for people to know about Lectio Divina? Yes, I think the important thing is to just start and to forget to be afraid to fail, fail, fail hard and write me about it. And I'll tell you about my failure and we can laugh at ourselves and we can make a new plan because there's always a way to get to a good place. But that place has to be made out of failures because you're not going to know what works and what doesn't work. I've never hit on a schedule or a morning time schedule that has hit off right away. There's always something that I have to tweak. There's always something that I have to fix. But what kept me from from doing that was my own pride or the fear that I wasn't giving them enough or that I wasn't enough when the truth was I just needed to actually do it. And I could see along the way what was important. And I had to learn to prioritize knowledge to what was important to our family and to be okay with that and to take the heat for that. Even if no one else agreed with me, I had to learn to say, well, you know what? It's our family and we're going to do it. Even my husband didn't understand skip counting. I had to say, we're going to do skip counting. (laughs) And then he came to me later and he was like, I didn't realize skip counting was so important. It's like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, so you get those little rewards of things, but you do have to, I think, be open to failure. I love it. Be open to fail. Try it anyway, because it's only in the failing that we're going to learn how to do it better. I think failure is the only practical thing I can actually tell someone to do. I feel like everything else is impractical because I don't know everyone's family situation, but I know that we're all going to fail. And so I can, you know, hopefully if you write me and you went, you know, you tell me about it, it's horrible failure, maybe we can help plan together or you can call your girlfriend and come up with a plan or your mom or somebody that can help you put the failure in context and and make something rise from the ashes. All right. I love it. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. And there you have it. Now for the basket bonus for this episode of the podcast, Ashley is writing us kind of a process sheet for Lectio Divina, giving us some tips and some tricks we can use to start implementing this practice in our morning time. 
And you can find that along with the links to everything Ashley and I spoke about today on the show notes for this episode of the podcast at pambarnhill.com forward slash YMB42. Now also on those show notes, you'll find directions there to help you leave a rating or review for the Your Morning Basket podcast on iTunes. The ratings and reviews that you leave help us get word out about the podcast to new listeners, and we appreciate you taking the time to do that. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another great guest, and until then, keep seeking truth, goodness, beauty in your homeschool day. <music>